This is Jason Albert, and you're listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. Avid readers of Faster Skier know her as the voice of reason and evidence when it comes to reporting on all things doping in Nordic sport. Chelsea Little, a force here at Faster Skier for eight years, is stepping down from her editor-at-large position. Based in Switzerland, as she wraps up her PhD in aquatic biology, Little took some time on June 27th to talk about her tenure at Faster Skier and what her plans are for the future. Come along for the ride as we dive into the world of reporting with Faster Skier's Chelsea Little. So I'm talking to Chelsea Little here, and the reason that I wanted to interview you first, it's not like your exit interview, so to speak, but you are finishing up your PhD, and we'll get to that piece in a sec, but sort of officially stepping down from your sort of editor-at-large role at Faster Skier. I'm sure we'll be hearing from you or reading some of your pieces in some capacity that you can talk about, but I thought it would be worth everyone's while to sort of hear your thoughts on lots of different questions. So that's the reason for really reaching out to you. Yeah. So that said, <laughs> let's talk about who you are like when you're not writing about faster skier. So you're an aquatic ecologist by training. Right. Well, yeah, I'm an ecologist by training. I think of myself as a generalist. I'm interested in big questions about um, why species are found, where they are, why some of them coexist, what they're doing in ecosystems in terms of like carbon processing and other stuff like that. So I actually began my career as a plant ecologist and did a lot of Arctic and Alpine plant research. And then in my PhD, switched to freshwater ecology. So yeah, now I'm an aquatic ecologist. I'm not really sure what the future will hold. Um, I, it's cool to be familiar with a couple different systems. And I think um, makes me think about things in a more broad way and make some connections, which is cool. But uh, I'm not, I'm neither a botanist nor a entomologist, nor do I know how to identify birds or yeah. I'm not a great naturalist. People are always like, you're an ecologist. What is that tree? And I, I'm not good at that. <laughs> Your dissertation has something to do with a freshwater species of, I don't know if you call it freshwater shrimp, but something akin <laughs> to a, a shrimp, but it's freshwater. Can you talk a little bit about, before we get into all the skiing stuff and the writing, like what your dissertation is about? Yeah, so... Um, I'm studying the sort of movement of material between terrestrial ecosystems and aquatic ecosystems. So streams and rivers don't grow a lot of plants in them generally compared to like a meadow or a forest. And so a lot of their energy depends on stuff that actually falls into the water from terrestrial ecosystems. And I'm specifically studying these little macroinvertebrates that look like tiny shrimp, um, and they eat a lot of the leaf litter that falls from forest into streams and process that carbon and nutrients and then are eaten by bigger organisms. So they're sort of facilitating this transfer of energy and resources from the terrestrial to the freshwater ecosystem. And yeah, you asked kind of how are they related to what we um, eat. I, I do love eating shrimp, like in garlic and butter. Mm. But yeah, they're not really 
Um, they're actually not really that closely related. I think they're related at the subclass level, maybe. And what I'm studying is a group of organisms that are all in the same family and mostly in the same genus. So their their relationship to marine shrimp that we eat is like pretty distant, actually. But they. Oh gosh. Okay. Yes, yeah, something like that. I could. <laughs> so writing for you and like being involved with the cross country racing scene and sort of, I think a lot of people think of you as the doping expert and more specifically the person who covers, uh, doping in the sport. You know, I'm curious doing a PhD and also writing as well. What does a typical workday look like for you? In particular, like when the McLaren reports were coming out a few years ago and there were, it was like new, you know, doping was in the news cycle day after day, it seemed like. Yeah. So I think one thing to just say quickly is, I mean, my life as a researcher is pretty varied and that has, I would say, enabled this as has the fact that as faster skiers, we have a bit of leeway. So, you know, there were times when I was writing a ton, as you mentioned, and other times when I was really barely writing at all. And um, Alex and the other people at Faster Skier, including like you and Gabby and everyone else who obviously probably published more when I wasn't publishing a doping story every day. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, it, it kind of comes and goes and sometimes, you know, I'd be just doing field work. And so that would mean that I was really limited during the day. Maybe I wasn't even online at all, or sometimes I'm really in the office writing and those kind of leave different amounts of mental space in the evening that I can think about, uh, sports writing. So yeah, I guess one answer is just, I have a bit of flexibility in both of my jobs just because of the nature of, of them. But yeah, I guess for the, you know, a lot of the pieces I write are pretty long. Uh, brevity is not really my strength. <laughs> and, and some of those long analytical pieces, I would work mostly at nights during the week or on the weekend, really just taking almost a whole day on the weekend and just like reading stuff and making notes and starting to write and realizing I didn't have this piece yet and, and going down a different internet wormhole, you know, in terms of breaking news stuff, if I was in my office, I, I could take like 20 or 30 minutes to just post a really quick summary of something that happened and then, you know, stay an extra 20 or 30 minutes at the end of the day to make up for it. So I guess it, it sort of ran the gamut. And for you, uh, was it sort of a respite from the science or was it like, okay, I'm switching from my job to a different job? Um, a little bit of both. I think for sure I, well, I say this, but I, I haven't ever really not done this, so I don't know what the alternative is, but I think that I do best when I have a couple different things that I'm working on and I can sort of switch my mind between them. And yeah, as you mentioned, like if one of them is really frustrating, just um, think about the other one for a while. 
But there were definitely times when they both felt like jobs and, you know, I'd get home from doing science and it was just like, ugh, I don't, I don't know if I can do faster skier tonight. And luckily, usually I wouldn't have to when I felt that way, um, just because of how, how our staff and our site works. And we don't often have deadlines. So that makes it a little more flexible. Okay. So a little more, you know, kind of drilling down a little bit, you know, we need to thank your boyfriend for this question. (laughs) Um, so, you know, a lot of your stories draw on documents and interviews and, you know, can you talk a little bit about your process of synthesizing information and deciding, you know, in quotes, like what the truth is and what the story is. Yeah. So I think this is something that I have learned a lot about during my, I guess, eight years as a writer for Faster Skier now. Um, I know it's really long. Um, You know, if you're, if you're not a journalist, you can just try to write the best story, but we are trying to write a story that is both good and true. (laughs) Um, And I think one thing is that I've realized it's not, there's not always just one true way to look at things. And that isn't like a matter of opinion, but people experience things differently. And that can be watching something that happened on a race course and you, you know, you watch it and you think, oh, that's what happened. And then you talk to the person involved and they're like, no, it, it wasn't like that actually. Or, or it can be, you know, with some of these investigations, you interview one person and they experienced something one way and somebody else experienced it another way off, especially if you have, you know, language issues going on. And so I think I've learned to be a little bit more open-minded about not taking the first thing that seems to make sense to me and deciding that is must be the the one true story. So so that's one thing. But I think, you know, on some of these things where there were really a lot of threads, um, one thing that was really helpful, like in the McLaren report investigation, was I made these databases of just going through the entire evidence packet and <laughs> cross-referencing every reference to a cross-country skier, a biathlete, and putting it in a giant spreadsheet. And being able to go back to refer to that was really helpful because I think I'm pretty good at keeping a lot of things in my head, but I would think like, oh yeah, you know, athlete X, this, they totally had this violation. And then I'd go back and realize like, no, it was actually the other guy that had that thing happen to him. And, or, you know, it was, not that the salt in his urine was too high, it was that the specific gravity was wrong. Or um, yeah, so I guess just keeping keeping good track of information was important. Yeah, I think a lot of it is just taking in a lot of information and then sort of mulling it over, like both on purpose and then just when you're doing other stuff, when you're out on a run, when you're riding on the bus, it's like it's just sort of percolating in there. And sometimes it'll take a little while and then it'll, it would feel to me like it made sense. And that's when I could start writing. Yeah. (laughs) Here's a follow-up question. And this, this idea of like what the truth is, and this is just more of for me, like a thought experiment. And I just kind of want your, your own thoughts or opinion on it, but like take doping for example. And, you know, the truth might be, you know, the perceived truth that 
athlete X doped it's Sochi. Okay. And so there's evidence for that in the McLaren report. Yeah. And then there's the piece. So to kind of go back a little bit, that evidence is cited in the report. There might be like a, a positive test result or an adverse analytical finding that they do follow up on. The other piece is that, you know, what's go, what went on? What's the backstory there? Like, why did the athlete choose to do that? What sort of pressure may or may not be, have been on that athlete? You know, what were the opportunity costs to dope or not to dope? Do you, I mean, are those things like, like, where does that fall into like what we might think of as the truth? Is that, I, I'm just sort of, does that make sense? What I'm asking? Yeah, no, it totally does make sense. And I think that's part of actually from the very beginning of the McLaren report, um, Russian doping whole extravaganza. I've really thought about that a lot. And I'm not sure if that comes through in my writing or not. Um, because, you know, in the end, if you have an adverse analytical finding, like it, that can't just be written off. But at the same time, I think that that backstory is really important. And it has irked me a little bit that, you know, I think as writers from the US, like we're never gonna know that backstory. Like I, <laughs> maybe someday, but I don't think so, would a Russian athlete tell us, frankly, what they were experiencing at that time, you know? They probably wouldn't even tell a Russian journalist, but they certainly wouldn't tell us. And so, but I think that's really important because just because something happened doesn't mean that we can ascribe <clears throat> a certain decision-making process to the person who did it. And yeah, I think all of the evidence from those investigations points to a crazy amount of pressure on these athletes. And it is about their livelihoods, sometimes even <clears throat> their families, their ability to make money, their safety. And that's something that I just didn't feel like I could write about very much because I don't have any like sources to draw on. So yeah, I was definitely trying to hold that in my head, but I didn't really know how to bring it into the reporting. You know, when you say you've been involved with Faster Shikita for eight years, that's a long time, uh, two Olympic cycles. You know, how did you get involved? And, you know, how did you sort of learn to become a writer slash journalist? Yeah, so I got involved, I think it was the fall of 2010, Um they advertised for an intern and I think I replied to the advertisement or I, I don't, I like, I don't actually even know how I would go back and figure this out, but, um, Nat Hertz somehow knew me, I guess from the Eastern college circuit. Um, so he might've even asked me to apply. I'm not sure, but anyway, yeah, I started working as an intern. Um, I was racing, very mediocrely in Craftsbury and I needed a little bit of cash. So it was kind of perfect. And I, you know, when I said I would be happy to do this, I felt really awkward covering ski racing cause I was still racing obviously. Um, so I offered to kind of head up biathlon coverage cause I figured it would be less awkward. At least I wouldn't be interviewing people I was competing against. <laughs> And I think they hadn't put that much 
energy into biathlon at that point. You know, they'd covered races where somebody did well. Um, Tim Burke had done super well the season before that. Um, and obviously they'd covered that, but I was, I kind of became the first like biathlon beat person. And then when I left Craftsbury, I, I just kept that job. I mean, I'm, I was no longer an intern, but I was just kind of a reporter. Um, as I took some various like low paying ecology field jobs, it was really, um, a relief to have that tiny bit of extra income. And then, yeah, when I moved to Europe in 20. 12. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I became editor at large. And so that basically means that, you know, I, I did get assigned some things that I had to do, but I also could come up with a lot of my own ideas. Although that's basically how it works for everybody at faster skier, I would say, but yeah, being in Europe, I just had a bit more exposure to a different, skiing community. And it was cool to try to bring that perspective. And I think a lot of fun for me and hopefully interesting to faster skier and the readers. So yeah. And then in terms of like how I learned to write, I don't have any formal journalism training. I took some creative writing classes in college. I guess the person who really taught me how to write was like my high school English teacher, (laughs) or maybe even my middle school English teachers. I don't know. But In terms of how to be a reporter, uh, when I started working at Faster Skier, Nat was the, well, Toffer was the editor-in-chief, and Nat was sort of the the day-to-day editor wrangling all the rest of us. And he was really doing things right in a lot of ways and taught me a lot about how I should be approaching things. You know, I learned from everybody at Faster Skier, from Toffer when he was still the editor, he had a really strong editorial viewpoint and he was writing regular editorials and that um, taught me that it's okay and good to have an opinion. Um, Alex has been a really great boss. She also knows a lot about journalism and professionalism and has taught me a lot um, also about how to edit other people's work, which is something I've done more of over the last few years. Uh, When I started covering international sort of politics and the IOC, um, I met Alan Abramson, who is a, yeah, I guess Olympic sports reporter. He runs a website called Three Wire Sports and teaches at USC. And he gave me some really helpful advice. He was very generous with his time um, and was a great mentor for me during that period. Um, so yeah, I guess really just the generosity of people who know a lot more than I do has, has let me become something of an actual journalist. (laughs) You know, you've covered kind of a darker side of sports. Um, you know, can you describe a moment when you were like ready to give up being a fan of, of cross country skiing? Yeah. Yeah. I think just before Pyeongchang, when the court of arbitration for sport overturned the bans of a bunch of the Russians who had been banned as part of the McLaren report investigations, that was really discouraging, especially at the time they didn't release a reasoned decision. Not that, so later they did release the full reasoning behind it and that didn't make it any easier to take because it wasn't great reasoning, but But at the time, it was just, on the one hand, I wasn't surprised, like, I'm not really an optimist about things in general, but um, much less at this point about corruption in sport. But 
on the other hand, it was just so discouraging. You know, we had felt like, you know, I had read so many documents and I had just hoped that some of these bands would stick because obviously bad things had happened and to just see the few bands that had come down be overturned. I was just so discouraged. And yeah, I I wrote a sort of analysis slash editorial piece at the time that people could probably tell how depressed I was. I don't know uh, what it's like to read those always. Um, But yeah, I was, I was discouraged and I was angry and I thought like, I don't even want to watch these Olympics. Like, what is the point? Um, but of course, after a few days, you get over that. We all do. Um, skiing is really exciting. And, you know, some of my former teammates were racing at the Olympics. And I obviously wanted to support them and see what they could do. And then the Olympics were really amazing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there can be really bad moments. But I guess I've reached some level of acceptance that that's the way it is. And also, as I think I wrote in that editorial, it's like things are exciting. And so it's hard not to come back to these sports. So, you know, a follow up on that, you know, having watched, I mean, I'm assuming you watched at least some of the Olympics and uh, noteworthy were many Russian performances. Right. Lots of young skiers. Uh, there was one older skier, I forget his name, probably I think he was in his late 20s, but predominantly a lot of youngsters. I got asked this question quite a bit, you know, when I got back home from Pyeongchang or when I was over there about, you know, what do you think you're seeing in terms of the Russians? And I was, you know, trying to perceive it as like a journalist. Well, like I, I really don't have all the facts except I, I think they're coming in here having not popped positive test. So that said, I'm curious, like what your perceptions were of how things transpired in Pyeongchang for the Russians? Yeah, I think, I mean, to be honest, I think I have a similar take that you do. It's really hard to know. Um, You know, first of all, Russia is a gigantic country. Um, The fact that we've never heard of someone doesn't mean that much because they only get to start so many people at every race. That doesn't mean they're not doping, but also, you know, there's other countries that have really phenomenal young skiers at that age who just break through. Um, There were some that won medals at the Olympics. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I just don't feel like I have the facts to say one way or the other, but I will say, like, I think it's, it is discouraging to see that a lot of the coaches that were involved before this scandal broke are, Mm. are still involved at one level or another, you know, in biathlon, they're like the head of the program, but in biathlon and skiing, sometimes they like got demoted to work with younger or more development teams. Like, but you know, a lot of these people are still there. And so that doesn't, really breed confidence. But yeah, I don't think it's fair to say anything about those young athletes. And I have to say there was a race um, earlier in the season, I think it was um, the first races in Finland, maybe when I think it was Belarukova on the women's side, maybe was like on the podium. And she'd obviously just had the best race of her life. And 
all the other women from, you know, Norway and Sweden and the US and Finland were congratulating each other and just nobody went over to talk to her. And, you know, I don't know whether she's clean or not. I, I can't say anything about that, but it kind of made me sad. It's like, if she is, then it's not her fault that any of this happened. And it's shitty that she has to deal with that. On the other hand, we don't know whether she's clean. So yeah, I don't know. It's very complicated. And I agree. We just, I don't have the facts to be able to say anything <laughs> less bumbling than that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just something I was constantly like, yeah. what, what is going, what am I actually seeing here? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about that a lot too. It's yeah. So what, you know, what keeps you coming back? for more both as a, a fan of the sport and as a journalist covering, covering the sport? Yeah, I, <laughs> I have to say that's a question I've asked myself a lot in the last few years. Um, always at the end of the race season, it's like, oh my God, I cannot do another year of this. But then, right, you know, right. for eight years I came back. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the longer I stayed in general, I would say the less excited I was to like write race reports. You know, I, mm -hmm. I remember one year I wrote a hundred race reports in a single season and like, they really uh, start to blend together. You feel right, like you're right. the same thing you wrote last week. And, and so, yeah, that can get really dull. Um, no offense to the athletes or anyone, but, but then at the same time, you know, then you'll have a weekend where you're just like, Oh, I feel like I'm just doing the same thing over again. But then the next weekend, something totally exciting and crazy and unexpected will happen. So just when you feel like all races are the same, some of the races are not the same and you know, it's exciting and you want to tell that story. And especially being in Europe the last few years, I've had some chances to go to races in person. You know, it's just uh, like two and a half hour train ride to Davos from my house. So, and yeah, other places are, are much more easily and cheaply accessible than if you're coming from the U S obviously. So I think honestly, that's probably the biggest thing that pulled me back is just when you're standing, as you know, um, in the middle of these stadiums, watching everything unfold in front of you, you know, your adrenaline gets going, the crowd is all shouting and like this noise is just funneled down at you and it's so exciting and it's, it's really kind of addicting. And, you know, this winter, the last races I went to were in Oslo, which is obviously one of the best venues on the world cup in any Nordic sport. And, you know, the day of the last race there, it was just so hard for me to think like, maybe I'm never going to get to do this again. Um, it's just so fun and so cool. Even though you're working really hard, it's totally worth it. So, I mean, that's one thing. But then I think the other is just the people that I got to work with, um, both fellow staff members at Faster Skier. I feel like we have a really great community. Um, you know, I'm going to linger on our Slack channel until somebody removes me from it. <laughs> I don't think you're um, going to get removed. <laughs> Um, but also, you know, doing the reporting, like I have had pretty long-term relationships as like reporter to interviewee with some coaches, with athletes, other team staff, um, people working for federations. Um, and these are people who are not just really good at what they do, but they're also really good people. 
And as you know, some of these athletes, we are trying to interview multiple times a week after races. And for the most part, they're super generous with their time, even though I'm sick, I'm sure they're sick of talking to us. Um, but they are still thoughtful about what they're saying. Um, and that's true of the coaches as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, that has been really rewarding and also surprising to me. Like I actually hate calling people on the phone. I really hate it. Um, when I have to do an interview, I like pull up Skype and I type in the number and then I sit there for a minute or two before I like hit that button to call because I just hate it so much. But <laughs> well, where's that nervous energy come from? Um, I guess, I mean, part of it is like, I don't know how they're going to react. Like, are they in a good mood that day? Like, are my questions stupid? Sometimes if you're in a hurry, you like basically haven't even planned out your questions and you're like, well, this is going to be a disaster. Um, I hope they can't tell. But also, I mean, it's also more general. It's like, I hate calling customer service. Like, I have that same feeling. I just, um, yeah, I guess I'm an introvert. And so this is challenging for me. Um, so yeah, I, it's really a testament to the people that I was working with that I kept calling them and doing this reporting thing. I think especially being in Europe, I felt very disconnected from you know, I had really been part of the U.S. ski community and they felt very far away. So this was an interesting way to kind of stay involved. And, you know, I couldn't be coaching the local junior team. Well, I did some coaching over here, but mostly not. And so it was like, this is what I could do to kind of contribute to U.S. skiing. The last thing I would say about that is just, you know, there's some stories that are really long term or or stories that we can't tell because people won't go on the record, or stories that actually we have no sources for, but we just think might be true. And, you know, you want to see if those will play out and if somehow you will be able to tie up those, those loose ends or see what happens or maybe see if somebody else can, can make it happen. And so, yeah, there's some narratives that you just don't want to abandon. Do you want to expand on that at all? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, I would love to. Um, So, yeah, there's, I guess, partly because I have been sort of on the doping beat, which is tied to the corruption beat. They're very related. But also in some other, you know, even domestic stories having to do with teams, but even, you know, private individuals or just like all kinds of stories. There have been things that we have worked on, but have not been able to publish for a variety of reasons. And I actually, I don't know how aware our readers are of that. I know we often get comments like, why aren't you writing about this? But sometimes we just can't, you know, we, um, we have pretty, uh, solid, and clear standards of what we do as journalists. And that includes, you know, sourcing things in ways that are reliable. We, we can't use anonymous sources unless we can confirm everything that they say. There's been really rare times that we've used anonymous sources in our pieces. But for the most part, if somebody comes to us with something and says, you know, I don't want my name on this, but this is happening. 
that's not enough for us to write a story. Um, and there can be a lot of reasons that somebody does that. Maybe they're afraid of retribution. We've had situations where people were bound by non-disclosure agreements and they came to us with information but said like, look, you can't quote me on this and actually I can't even tell you. I can just tell you that something is going on. But if we can't find another source of that information, then our hands are just tied. And so sometimes we've spent a really long time on these stories that ultimately get killed because we don't have any information that we can attribute to someone, um, even if we've looked for documents or emails or gone back to sources over and over saying, okay, now we know this. Now would you reconsider if you would go on the record? And um, yeah, sometimes those things eventually play out. A lot of times they don't. Or sometimes some other news organization or blog manages to tell that story um, that's interesting to see too. And in that point, like, I'm not even mad that I got scooped. If one of those things eventually gets published, I'm just like happy that it's out there. Um, because, you know, we wouldn't spend that much time researching these stories, trying to get them publishable if we didn't think they were important. Um, but yeah, there's, there's things that I think we all would love to see sort of tied up that, that haven't been. So, you know, what are you most proud of in terms of your work at Faster Skier? I think in terms of the like work output, I would say two things. One would be um, back really early in my Faster Skier career, I wrote this story about um, hormonal birth control and female athletic performance. And the number of people I've had tell me that they read that story and like referred it to their friends or their teammates or their athletes has really honestly shocked me. Um, I, I can see that people are still reading it, which is, uh, I've been meaning for a long time to go back and edit it. It's like, I, <laughs> it's a hot mess. Um, <laughs> I remember when I sent Nat the first draft of it and he was just like, ugh, try again. <laughs> like, <laughs> because you know, I was trying to synthesize some medical research, but there hadn't really been that much done. And so it was like really weirdly tangential and then interviewing some doctors and endocrinologists and um, interviewing a bunch of athletes, some of whom were anonymous because this is obviously a kind of sensitive topic. And so, yeah, I think I could do a lot better with the writing now. And also, I'm sure that the science has changed a lot in terms of what we know. But I think um, people in general were not aware that this was even something to consider. And I think that actually changed in the ski community, at least for some period of time. And so I'm really, first of all, really, really thankful to it was over 100 athletes that talked to me for that story. And without them, I could not have written it. And so um thank you to them. But I'm, I'm really proud that we posted something like that on Faster Steer, even if it was kind of a mess of <laughs> a piece of writing. Um, but I'm gonna have to go back and track that. Oh, down. God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, maybe, maybe I will, maybe I will still edit. better hurry up and edit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Um, but yeah, so that's one thing. And then I think, you know, I have really pushed for clean sport in skiing and biathlon. I have been a pain in the ass to numerous employees of international federations. I'm sure they are probably thrilled that I am leaving faster skier. Um, and 
you know, some of my takes on things looking back, I'm not proud of, they could have been more nuanced, they could have been less reactive. I could have waited a couple days before publishing them, and they probably would have been much better. Um, But I think that, you know, I'm proud of the work that I did. And I'm not sure if it made a difference. But I think that even if it didn't affect the way that any of these organizations handled things, I think that it was important for athletes at all levels to know that like somebody was on this story and trying to find out the truth and trying to make sure that things were fair as fair as they could be. Um, I don't know always (laughs) whether they realized how little what I was writing actually influenced the decisions that were being made, but just to have it out there. And I really did try to source things as well as I possibly could. I I mean, I did tons of work um, looking at data and going through documents. And yeah, I developed some really great relationships with people who were fighting for clean sport and yeah, I'm, I'm proud of that body of work and that it's out there. And I hope that things are better now. I, I don't know. (laughs) Well, I would, they're probably, well, we'd like to think that they're improved. Right. I think they're improved. It probably has nothing to do with me, but, um, (laughs) well, I, I I would give yourself a little bit of credit. Um, and what was the, you know, your a low point, a worst moment for you? Yeah, so I mentioned the the court of arbitration for sport decision. That was like sort of on an existential level, probably the worst. But <laughs> some specific things, you know, it's not easy. First of all, we write on the internet. We always get mean comments. Um, I try not to read them, but I always read them, and then I get mad. <laughs> yeah. So I mean. I don't think I handled that aspect of this job very well. I don't think I'm very, I don't know if anyone is suited for that aspect of this job, but I don't think I am. But um, I guess, I don't know, some other things, it it has been hard sometimes being a female sports reporter. Um, A lot of the media centers and newsrooms at these big events are pretty male dominated. There was one time um, it was in Hochfilzen in Austria, where I was in the like media sort of lunchroom, and a couple of the other journalists assumed I was the catering staff and like handed me their dirty dishes, and I was just like, "Ugh, I'm wearing an accreditation around my neck! Like, come on!" <laughs> um, and then you know, leaving the venue that same day, some drunk fans like you know yelled at me, and that was not awesome. Um, So there's stuff like that. And then I think sort of professionally, something that was kind of crushing was, um, readers probably remember this winter, there was a reveal of old blood testing values from FIS. So yeah, Hajo Seppelt, this German journalist, and some other people got together. They had been leaked this data from FIS's blood testing from... I don't know, it was before 2007, or maybe even older than that. Um, But it was quite old. And they analyzed it all, they sent it to, um, I think, to Jim Strake Gunderson. And 
you know, they, they said a lot of these values are really abnormal. And this was a huge team of journalists and they were writing about doping and cross country skiing. I am a scientist. I like do statistics. That's my job. Um, they had invited some people from a new journalism startup in Zurich that had only even been publishing for like three months. And I found out about this when it was published online. And I was just like, man, this has been my beat for so long. And I feel like I am an expert in this, but I guess it just didn't occur to anybody that I might have something to add. That was, that was frustrating. I was like, why, why are you yeah, doing I mean, this? I, re <laughs> I remember your comments, you know, in our little Slack thread and it made me think about like you were just referencing, you know, you walk into any media room at, you know, I've never been in like an MBA media room or like NFL. But that said, uh, it's, it's more than male dominated. Right. That has definitely been my experience. I mean, there are some, but um, I think the most common is to have, you know, one of your two TV commentators be a woman. There's not a lot of women like in the mix zone. Um, in my experience. So who are your favorite commenters on Faster Skier and, your mo and the most feared? Yeah, I think, well, so I think since the change in commenting system, that's a harder thing to answer just because we get less comments and um, less discussion. But I really, um, whenever I see that one of the Galanis brothers has commented on my piece, I get like excited and nervous because they're they're really smart. They're really experienced. They have a strong perspective. Um, and so I'm always really interested to hear their opinions, but I'm all also like really afraid that they're going to point out something I wrote that is wrong. Cause I don't know what I'm talking about, which I shouldn't be afraid of, but you know, it's not a good feeling. So, but it's also good to then know that information. So yeah, I think they're a great example of some people who are pretty engaged and pretty knowledgeable. And, um, you know, I think we in general, like learn from their comments, which is, which is great. Um, all right. Two more questions before I let you go here. Uh, <laughs> one is, and I did not write this down cause this has just been in the news cycle the past, like say 36 hours or so. Um, but I have to say like how impressed I am with Jesse Diggins. She's obviously in the ESPN body issue, but, <laughs> but further, you know, she's revealing that she struggled with an eating disorder in, I believe in high school. It's interesting to be a fly on the wall, so to speak, and kind of see how this is all manifesting publicly. Um, so I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's definitely, you know, we, in sport, there's a lot of people who are really good young, and some of them stay good and some of them don't, but you get to see how they change because they will have been doing interviews since they were teenagers. And um, I am really impressed with what Jesse is doing. I think in particular, the blog post that accompanied her sort of announcement of her body issue shot, like that really um, was important to me. Like I am just like some person who has a couple jobs and like tries not to be too out of shape, but um, body image is really important and it's really hard to talk about. And 
like to just go out there and use your platform to sort of bury yourself, like not just in these pictures, but like really what happened to you and what you've been through is really impressive. And I think is really needed. And, but it's not something that you can ask everyone to do. Like it's not, not everyone can do that. Um, we can't expect that every athlete does that. And so when somebody does do it, it's like really awesome. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was, I was really impressed with that. And, um, I hope that it helps people. Um, yeah, just, I mean, having been a woman in sport, like these are important things and it's really great to hear someone talk about them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as you ride sort of into the sunset here, the proverbial sunset, um, where, <laughs> well, the sun is setting. In it's Zurich gotta be late. Right how, moment, how late but... <laughs> is it there? Is it like 10, 15? No, no, it's like nine 15. It's, okay. it's not my bedtime yet, but okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So where might people read up on you in the future? Yeah. So that's something I'm still trying to figure out. I think, um, so I worked at Faster Skier through the end of April, I think, um, or maybe the middle of April, I don't know, somewhere in there. And the first month after I was no longer on the payroll was just such a relief, I have to say. Like, I didn't think about it at all. I didn't write anything about sports. I read some things, but... Um, and, you know, my life kind of automatically readjusted to fill those new time gaps. And I still feel like I'm really busy and super exhausted all the time. So I don't know how I was doing it before. So that that is sort of a caveat to, you know, I I now feel like I have rebounded a little bit. And I'm, I'm really interested in all of this stuff now that's not ever going to go away. So I hope that I can keep... Um, writing a little bit. Probably I will occasionally publish on Faster Skier. It's not like I'm gone forever, but I'm not, I'm definitely not a staff writer anymore. I, I just can't handle that um, at this point trying to finish my dissertation. So yeah, I am starting my own sort of writing gig. I'm hoping to do some more freelancing um, as well. I'm I've always been interested in other endurance sports. You know, I was a runner before I was a skier. Um, just as mediocrely as I was a skier. <laughs> and, you know, I have friends who are doing rowing and biking, and I would like to be able to cover things that are happening in those sports, which I have done a little bit in the past um, outside of faster skier. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about maybe being able to cover some different kinds of stories, um, write for different audience with a different tone. I don't know. Um, and I think, you know, I know some of the athletes in our sport and some of the stories in our sport really well. And so I'd also love to be able to tell those to a different audience. Um, and, you know, I think faster skier readers know pretty well what to expect from me at this point. So me writing another editorial for faster skier would not really be like that exciting news, but, um, maybe my knowledge can, can take me to some new stories, but I, 
And my main focus right now is finishing my dissertation. But yeah, I have a website called bestlinesports.net, which is where I will base myself as a freelance writer. And most of the time, I will just be continuing to follow these storylines and probably tweeting about them. Um, so if people are interested in my take on these different developments, they can find me on Twitter at Chelsky Little. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to like think about saying goodbye, but I'm pretty sure this is not goodbye. Um, it's just, I need a mental health break. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go finish up my PhD. To, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for your time. Thanks for all your work. Um, yeah, I knew a lot. Of, it's, it's kind of like gulp, a lot of readers and I'm certainly on the staff were like, okay, there's going to be a void. I really hope that they, they find a voice in this. Somebody gives some new takes instead of just my old ones over and over again. <laughs> that, could, that could be you, Gavin, up in Alaska. Yeah, that's your, <laughs> that's your cue. All right. Well, thanks, Chelsea. Good luck with everything. Yeah, thank um, you so much, Jason. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. 